Welcome to the Political Economy Forum's podcast. I'm Morgan Wack, PhD student and co-producer of this podcast. On today's episode, I'll be hosting Professor Rachel Heath. Professor Heath is a professor of economics at the University of Washington and, more importantly, co-founder of this podcast. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Uh, It's great to be here. Today, we'll be focusing on your research on the ready-made garment sector in Bangladesh. More specifically, we'll be talking through your recent work with Drs. Lauren Bosevi and Yu Yang Cho, examining the impact of international scrutiny on reforms in the aftermath of the 2013 factory collapse in Rana Plaza, which you recently presented for SIGA, the Center for Effective Global Action. Your paper on this subject will be included in the show notes for listeners. To start off, can you give us a brief overview of how you came to be involved in research in Bangladesh? Yeah, so um, in Bangladesh in particular, my PhD advisor, or um, one of the members of my committee, was uh, working on a, a data collection project in Bangladesh. And just because there's so many kind of startup costs and fixed costs to collecting data that it makes sense to, you know, kind of do a bunch of projects together. So it kind of made sense to, to kind of join that project. So I knew I was going to work in Bangladesh, but then, you know, I kind of had an interest in labor markets and kind of gender issues. And so the garment industry was this big as yet unstudied. I mean, not not totally, you know, it's not that nobody ever looked at it, but kind of, I'd say, understudied, less understood aspect of labor markets in low-income countries. So given that I was working in Bangladesh, I knew, um, I knew I wanted to kind of dig into the garment industry. Great. Yes, your work, this paper specifically uses the Rana Plaza factory collapse as an inflection point in worker conditions in the country. Can you give us some details on the incident? And can you talk about how international scrutiny played into this in the aftermath? Yeah, so Rana Plaza um, collapsed in April 2013. So the people, some people might remember pictures from the international news. It, it looks like there was an earthquake, like the building just totally collapsed into itself. But it wasn't, it just was structurally unsound and not supposed to be uh, used for manufacturing purposes at all. And so in the end, over a thousand workers were killed, which makes it the, the worst disaster in the garment sector in the history of the world. You know, many more people killed than like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in the U.S., you know, which was, of course, very important in the U.S., but this was just kind of an even larger scale than that. So that's what happened. And it, it attracted a lot of, you know, what we call in the paper international scrutiny. And I mean, you know, it's not, you know, that there was no international attention on the garment industry before. There'd been some, you know, smaller tragedies and fires and stuff like that. But this was just an order of magnitude bigger. So what happened was a bunch of primarily the retailers. Um, so, you know, kind of the, the names that you've seen in, in mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of in clothing stores, you know, Gap and H&M started pushing, you know, in response to, you know, consumers kind of saying, you know, we don't want our clothes produced in factories that fall down. You know, they started pushing the factories to make working conditions better. So it's very much kind of led by Western brands as pushed by their consumers. But, you know, but also an important part of that was the, you know, the workers themselves and people within Bangladesh protesting for, for better working conditions. And that's kind of that, that within country protest was what kind of garnered a lot of the attention as well. Got it. So this did kind of occur from the grassroots of these Western consumers. The spotlight that was put on this incident reverberated through these multinational corporations. It was less so top down through the governments. That, that's right. Um, the I, I don't want to kind of you know say that the government had you know absolutely mm-hmm. zero role, but but certainly the you know the biggest pushes came from yeah I think I think grassroots is right both within Bangladesh and um, higher income countries. You know, kind of certainly yeah. Grassroots, I would say, is exactly right. Great. Okay, can you give us a 
brief overview of the ready-made garment industry in Bangladesh and how important it is both to the economy there and to the livelihoods of, of women and men who work in this industry. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's you know hugely important to the to the country and its economy. I mean, and kind of you know we we've seen that kind of you know particularly clearly now during COVID nineteen, the factories only shut down for a very brief amount of time. They were exempt from the nationwide lockdown, and just you know everybody recognized that essentially you know the country just needed garments to keep being produced. So yeah, it constitutes I think the latest estimate is thirteen percent of GDP and eighty um, percent, the vast majority of export earnings. So it's kind of essentially the the only export of Bangladesh. So yeah, and then you know kind of what does it matter for the, the livelihoods of workers? So um, the best estimate there are about four million workers in the country working in in the garment sector. And you know, it's factories are hard places to work, but they're you know frequently pay better than what workers alternatives alternatives would be so that, you know, kind of having these jobs and, you know, importantly, it's not just that they pay more, but they also, you know, they pay more reliably. So we've been doing some kind of, again, kind of going to the COVID context, we've been doing some surveys of workers and the average spouse of the you know worker in the sample is earning only about 50% of, you know, what they were earning in January, whereas, you know, kind of the worker's income has stayed much more stable. So would you say that the low-skill manufacturing that goes on in Bangladesh is biased towards poor working conditions because it's so competitive, because there are so many people vying for these spots? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's certainly, you know, a big and open <laughs> question. I mean, some of my research kind of does try to explain why working conditions are often bad. But I think the first thing to point out is that they're much more heterogeneous than is certainly kind of commonly kind of depicted in the media. The people that I know that kind of have known the industry for a while kind of said, you know, it wasn't as surprising that Rana Plaza collapsed. It kind of, it was known as kind of a place that, you know, where the factories weren't as, as good. So I think that's one thing, you know, they're kind of, you know, there, there are many places where working conditions are, are quite bad and, you know, in the extreme there, there's tragedies, but, you know, it's not, there's kind of, there's heterogeneity in, in, in the working conditions. You know, why is that the case? You know, kind of some of my work argues that workers don't have information about working conditions when they start working. Um, so, you know, kind of word of mouth works, but not perfectly. So that kind of most workers are migrants from rural areas who don't, you know, kind of, you know, don't have a big network when they start out. And so, you know, and if that's true, that workers kind of, you know, don't know what, you know, how good a factory is to work when they start. And factories actually have less incentive to make improvements because it's not, you know, it's not a way that they can kind of attract workers. They'd say kind of it's hard for workers to know um, at least perfectly where are the good places to work. There's kind of a little role for, you know, yes, about the government earlier. There's, you know, certainly far less than we have in, you know, most high income countries as far as the government coming in and, you know, ensuring minimum quality standards. So, you know, before, you know, some of the responses to Rana Plaza that we'll talk about, you know, there was some government auditing, but it was pretty easily, I don't want to say totally subverted, but it was kind of, there wasn't a clear pathway if a problem was found to kind of compelled the factories to, um, to improve things. So I think, you know, it's kind of problems could be found, but it was less likely that they were, uh, that they were going to be fixed. That's great. Well, let's switch into now that we have a background into your paper, which is called the effects of international scrutiny on manufacturing workers, evidence from the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh which we'll attach to the show notes. So can you give us an overview of what your hypotheses were, in particular focus on kind of the short versus medium run effects? I think this is a very fascinating part of your paper. I'd love to hear you talk about that. Oh, well, th uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think we were, 
I'd say we were relatively agnostic going in as far as hypotheses, just in the sense that, I mean, I guess, you know, the kind of the clearest one, you know, hypothesis, the hypothesis that we had in mind was that, you know, we did think it was at least plausible that working conditions would improve because, you know, so much of this, you know, kind of international scrutiny, as we call it, was targeted towards, you know, kind of make working conditions better. So I think that was the kind of most kind of clear hypothesis that we, we brought coming in. But, you know, we look at some other outcomes, you know, kind of wages, um, whether workers get a contract, how many hours they work. And for those, you know, there was kind of much more theoretically ambiguous what was going to happen, you know, kind of did wages go up because, you know, some of the, you know, scrutiny was kind of also on wages or did they actually go down because now you're kind of, you know, you've made firms make all these investments in working conditions. It's, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's more costly to hire somebody because you have to, you know, provide them better working conditions. And so maybe wages actually fell. And then, you know, and then in, as you mentioned, we, you know, we think that, you know, some of these effects could play out differently over the short term versus the medium term, as far as, you know, maybe the working conditions improved right away. It took a little longer. If firms were going to later cut wages, maybe they wouldn't do those right away, especially if there was all this scrutiny right away. So that we, we weren't kind of, you know, we didn't have a strong kind of prior belief on what was going to happen to outcomes other than working conditions. But we we did think that it was potentially, you know, those, the effects could be different in the short term versus the medium term. And did you see that play out in terms of kind of a large spike of international scrutiny right after that died off fairly quickly? Or was it sustained longer than we would anticipate? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of, it continued, but in different forms. So that the, um, you know, at first it was kind of, I mean, I described the kind of, you know, consumer protests that happened afterwards. Um, you know, the protest didn't last for, for that long. But what did happen was that retailers formed two big initiatives um, called the Accord and the Alliance um, to try to improve working conditions and worker safety. And, you know, those did a series of audits that were, you know, kind of the goal was for them to have more, you know, quote unquote teeth than previous audits that I was describing. So, you know, for instance, the results are public. So that, you know, if a factory gets in trouble, they, you know, kind of the retailers would know that and, you know, presumably be less likely to to buy from them. So, so yeah, so it kind of continued. I mean, there's kind of, there's an NGO that's kind of formed, you know, from the kind of legacy of the the alliance. And so, you know, it's kind of, it keeps going in some form. And I'd say this is kind of the legacy of the, you know, post-Rana Plaza protests. Great. To investigate this, to see what the short-term and medium-term effects are on men and women's hours, wages, uh, contracts, can you talk us through your use of a synthetic control? Our listeners here are huge methods fans, so maybe it'd be great to hear how you feel that that showed the results. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So to kind of introduce, you know, why we need a synthetic control. So the question we want to ask is, you know, what, what was the impact of all of this scrutiny on workers in the, um, in the garment sector? And our whole hypothesis is that, you know, even though maybe some brands, you know, reacted more strongly than other or retailers or brands reacted more strongly than others, these changes were so big that they impacted potentially every worker in the, in the sector. And so you kind of, you can't really think about, you know, quote unquote, treatment versus control garment workers, because, you know, our hypothesis is everybody's treated because these were kind of such big changes in the in the industry. So, you know, so then the question becomes, you know, if all the garment workers are, quote unquote, treated, who, who's the control group? You know, and one way, you know, because, as I mentioned, the garment sector is so special to Bangladesh, 
it's really hard to find the right suitable control group. Um, you know, one approach within, you know, kind of not just economics, but, you know, other um, quantitative social sciences is called a difference in difference, where you identify a control group, but that group might be not, you know, a perfect control to your treatment group. But what you do is compare the difference in treatment versus control before versus after whatever treatment you're kind of, that, that you're looking at. And so the, you know, the hypothesis is that there might be differences in the treatment and control group, but those are captured by that first comparison beforehand. And so, you know, if the differences say get bigger after the treatment happened, you know, the kind of the difference in those differences is attributable to the, the, the treatment. So that's why you do a difference in difference, but you still then have to pick a, you know, a control group. And so synthetic control is useful when there's no kind of obvious choice going in, um, you know, what would be the, you know, as I mentioned, it's, you know, the garment industry, you know, it's the vast majority of um, export earnings. Um, there's no kind of just clear control group. And so what synthetic control does is it picks a, a weighted average of different units, in our case, industries that match the trend in your treatment group going into the treatment. So it kind of, it helps increase the likelihood that you, you know, have a valid difference in difference framework because you kind of you found a group that look like they're on kind of the similar trends before the, the treatment. And so then if, if they then diverge after the treatment, it's more likely that, you know, that divergence is due to the treatment. Yeah, it's a very clever way of getting at causal inference when there's a, a difficulty with controls. Absolutely. So let's get to the findings of the paper, I know there's quite a few here and it's split up between women and men and short and long-term. So maybe we can start at the beginning. What would you say were the short-term effects overall and the short-term effects split between men and women in the industry? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, you know, in the short term, which for us was the, um, as I mentioned, Rana Plaza was in April of 2013. So we have data on the rest of 2013. So, you know, the short run, things looked pretty good. You know, working conditions were, were starting to improve and the wages were, were going up as well. And part of that, although not the only factor, was that ultimately in um, December, there was a minimum wage increase as kind of, you know, which we kind of think of as arising broadly from, you know, all this kind of protesting and scrutiny is that, you know, workers started protesting for, for higher wages as well. You know, so, so in the short run, things did look pretty good. but then when we get to the, the longer run or the kind of medium term, as we call it, so that was 2015 and 2016. So by a couple of years afterwards, wages for women in particular were starting to fall. Um, and so by 2016, women's wages relative to this kind of control group were, were 20% lower. Um, so kind of, you know, if we have the right control group, then it means that the net effect of all this kind of international scrutiny led to women's wages going down by 20%. And why do you think it differentially affected women versus men in the industry? Right. No, it's the key question. Um, and we can't kind of, you know, provide a definitive explanation. But there's maybe broadly two sorts of hypotheses for why are women's wages going down. Uh, the first is that, you know, women just have worse um, alternative options. And so even if things get bad in the garment industry, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll stay there. The other option is that you know, all this international scrutiny and the pressure to improve working conditions is differentially costly to, um, you know, to the firms when they're hiring women. So, you know, for example, you know, firms were pushed to allow sick leave and, you know, if women are the ones staying home with sick kids, then, you know, it's going to be, you know, sick leave is more costly when you're hiring women. 
distinguish between the two, the kind of the, the former hypothesis uh, implies that if anything, the industry is going to become more female after Rana Plaza because the men are going to leave um, for their better options. So we don't find any evidence of that. So we think it's more the second one that now that you're pushed to improve working conditions, that's um, a little more costly to do for, for women workers. And so firms are kind of differentially reducing their wages. Do you see any reduction in the ratio of men and women hired in the industry? So it um, so ultimately it gets, if anything, um, slightly more male, okay. um, but not not a big effect. Yeah, so that makes sense. That would track with that with that hypothesis. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. it's kind of what what kind of led us to think, you know, it is a little bit more that the working conditions improvements are particularly costly for for um, for women. Okay. All right, let's expand this beyond the paper and see what this says about the larger garment industry and manufacturing in that part of the world. First off, do you think that Bangladesh is on the same trajectory in terms of workers' rights and workers' conditions as some of the other countries in Southeast Asia? Or do you feel that there's not necessarily a set pathway for improvement in conditions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, yeah, it's always really hard to kind of make predictions about the future because, you know, um, the trajectory of the garment industry is affected not just by that, by kind of phenomena within the country, but also, you know, kind of global competition. There's some evidence that when uh, Myanmar, which is kind of a, often a competitor to Bangladesh, when they opened to trade and, you know, kind of ramped up the garment sector there, that working conditions there were improving. Um, and so, you know, that might be kind of, I mean, that's kind of the, you know, the, the rosier scenario is that as, um, you know, working conditions in one country improving, that's kind of more of a global push. And so that, you know, the countries where things are getting better, like we find in Bangladesh, it's not kind of going to, you know, be as much of a competitive disadvantage. So on the other end, if we see these improvements in conditions as being specific to Bangladesh and their competitors, maybe Myanmar, not having to go through with these same conditions, do we see them becoming less profitable or less competitive on the international market? Is there sort of a race to the bottom when it comes to workers' conditions and this type of targeted international scrutiny? I guess, I mean, you know, they don't automatically leave. I mean, in the sense that we haven't seen any reduction in exports since Rana Plaza, despite uh, working conditions, you know, getting better as we've we found. Um, so I think that's one thing. It doesn't have to mean that you're, you know, you know, maybe you lose a little bit of a competitive advantage, but it doesn't, it looks like, you know, it doesn't compel firms to, to leave. And I do think that, you know, there's kind of possible for kind of a, again, kind of a, you know, the rosy scenario would be that, um, you know, in an industry where there's, you know, a fair amount of turnover, where, you know, workers kind of do, you know, kind of learn specific skills that their firm might value, you know, it's not always totally, you know, kind of, I kind of raise the possibility that, you know, improving working conditions could put you at a competitive disadvantage, but you could also imagine firms actually realizing that, you know, maybe it's actually good for a kind of business. And, you know, I guess, and it also matters that, you know, that all the firms are kind of, in Bangladesh were compelled to do it at the same time so that they're competing with other countries, but they're also competing within the country. And so, you know, maybe individually some firms wanted to improve working conditions before Rana Plaza, but it didn't kind of make sense until everybody was compelled to. Well, that's some good, much needed optimism. That's, yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah. trend. 
so that that pivots to a good point. So if we say that the the short term effects were pretty overwhelmingly positive, and the medium run effects kind of differentially affected women and men with you know much more pessimistic negative outcomes, at least in what would you say to people concerned with sustaining international scrutiny? So these consumer groups in Western countries, or maybe the civil society organizations in Bangladesh, how would your research say international scrutiny can best be targeted and sustained in the long run to maybe counter some of these negative long-term effects? Yeah, I mean, and I think the first thing to do is point out that, you know, I mean, I, I did mention that we found that women's wages you know, fell um, in the medium term. But we also want to be kind of careful to, you know, that people aren't reading our results to say that women were hurt. Um, because, you know, it, as I mentioned, you know, many garment factories are hard places to work. And, you know, in some kind of follow-up survey work that I've done, if you ask workers kind of hypothetical choice questions, you know, would you be willing to, you know, give up a certain percent of your wage to move to a factory where, you know, there's better relations between workers and management or, or things like that. You know, workers do, you know, they are willing to give up a fair amount of wages to improve working conditions. So, um, you know, they had better working conditions, worse wages. And, you know, it's kind of, it's hard to really kind of try to say, you know, were they better or worse off? Um, you know, presumably people vary and, you know, some were happy and, you know, others less so. So I think that that's the first thing. How to better target international scrutiny? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of another great question. Um, you know, one thing it's hard to know is um, kind of, I guess, still an open question is, you know, kind of if brands paid more um, to the factories, you know, how much of that would come to workers, um, you know, either in the form of kind of non-wage benefits or improvements to working conditions or wages. So I think that's not kind of yet known. I mean, you know, hopefully somebody will have the data to do that at some point, because I think that's kind of a key question is, you know, does it work to kind of, you know, push firms to pay more, you know, how much of that will make it to the workers? Um, I mean, I think also, you know, presumably at least some of the cost of doing business in Bangladesh is, uh, you know, electricity isn't, you know, stable uh, or stable, other infrastructure is not, not great. And so that, you know, in as much as, you know, firms will kind of you know, the cost of to firms of doing business is pretty high, you know, kind of in as much as just kind of general improvements to, you know, the business climate in Bangladesh could also, um, you know, kind of make their way to workers. That's, that, you know, that that's a potential role for all this international scrutiny as well. Great. So one more question on the, on the garment industry. Does it seem like automation is a threat to this industry in the long run, or is it so different from the types of work that automation is focused on at the moment. It's so low wage, low skill that it's not necessarily a fear of workers or companies in that area that automation may take away a lot of these jobs in this economy. For sure that, you know, there's the potential that, you know, as, as economists would call it, you know, substitute capital for labor. And I guess a lot does kind of depend on like what actually the wage rate is. Um, and, uh, you know, Bangladesh and, and competing countries um, and kind of ultimately, I mean, because, you know, I've kind of, you know, seen, for instance, factories where, you know, they were printing or kind of putting colored logos on T-shirts and there was side by side a guy that was doing it by hand, painting the different colors and then a machine that had the different um, trays. And uh, I was like, oh, you're doing it both ways. And they said, well, yeah, if it's... Um, 
if it's fewer than three colors, it makes sense for the guy to do it. If it's more than four, it makes sense for the uh, the machine. And so, so you kind of, you know, they're kind of certainly making these calculations a lot. And, you know, maybe the number of colors where it switches would, you know, vary if the wage rate um, kind of changed. I mean, I think ultimately, I'm not an expert in kind of industrial engineering or anything like that. I mean, it seems like, you know, these technologies exist. So it's not really a function of like, new um new technology but you know but as i mentioned you know does it make sense to use the technology or the workers um i mean i think another reason for optimism is that some of my work has also found that as garment factories have come in girls education's gone up and so i think the hope would be that you know sure you know maybe in you know 30 years there won't be you know the same number of people working in garment factories but that you know there would be kind of the first step towards you know producing higher value items I have one final question. So we've talked a bit about how consumers and civil society organizations can maybe sustain pressure or retarget pressure scrutiny. In terms of policymaking, you mentioned the focus here on short and medium term and how the incentives are not always aligned to focus on these long-run equilibria. And I'm wondering if you have any notion of how in the political sphere, we may be able to reframe the incentives so that these long-term effects are it's being integrated into the policy calculations. Hmm. Uh, and, and so we as policymakers, are you thinking like kind of from like the perspective of like a high income country or like yeah, the Bangladeshi I mean, government or? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be interesting to hear what you think about a couple different levels of, of government. It could be from the Bangladeshi government or from somebody like the World Bank who's sustaining some of these standards or from academics for that matter, if we run experiments and we get the result we want after you know, six months, what's the incentive to come back after three years? I see, just for everybody kind of longer term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I guess like most obviously in this project, we, um, you know, kind of we call our kind of the, the last set of effects that we have in 2016, we call them medium term. You know, we'd love to look longer term, but the, the government um, didn't conduct the labor force survey that we um, that we need to um, you know to estimate the effects in you know the longer term. So I think I think that's the first long term incentive is just you know given that our project kind of shows that at least short versus medium term the effects of not just international scrutiny but any sort of kind of complicated <laughs> new policy or kind of change to the industry you know they do vary short versus medium term and then presumably also in the longer term. So I think kind of you know kind of data to track all of these effects is, is the first thing. Yeah, from the Bangladeshi government side, um, the government hadn't been doing a lot to, uh, to try to, or, you know, that we kind of viewed as effective at improving conditions in working factories and that, you know, absent that, the um, retailers um, can kind of step in. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately there is I mean, you know, the the court and the alliance that I mentioned, they're not legally enforceable. So, you know, though they try to the retailers try to kind of, you know, make them kind of have teeth to them by, you know, posting the results, as I mentioned. But, you know, ultimately a factory could just keep going. So I think, you know, it would presumably be more effective if the government came in. Um, it's kind of, it's a classic example of a market failure in economics in the sense that, you know, um, we usually think that markets aren't great at um, kind of regulating in circumstances where there's kind of a risk that's really hard to find out for individual consumers or workers, but that has like a really bad consequence. You know, we kind of, we want the government to come in and, you know, make sure um, restaurants aren't giving us salmonella and, you know, the factory falling down is, you know, kind of 
has a lot of similarities to that. It's just, you know, there's no way workers would have the, you know, the background to know, is this, you know, factory safe? And so we kind of have this word of mouth channel that I was working, that I was mentioning earlier, to have that kind of, you know, warn workers to stay away. It's just, you know, we don't have, <laughs> I mean, workers don't, I don't, you know, um, it's, it's a very specialized skill to kind of know, is this a safe, um, uh, is this a safe place to work? So I think kind of ultimately, you know, the government would be kind of great if they kind of formalize some of these, um, these things. Um, and I think, you know, it's, you know, what would it take for the government to do that? I mean, I, you know, um, um, I mean, I, I actually, you know, it's a good question. I don't know if it's, you know, kind of um, desire or, um, but, you know, I think, you know, I think there's at least hope. I mean, I know there's kind of good people in the government that are, you know, trying to do the right thing. So, um, you know, in as much as you mentioned the World Bank and as much as they kind of have leverage to, you know, to try to kind of compel the government, then, you know, that could be helpful as well. Right, well, first step is certainly to produce more articles like this that bring attention to the fact that the short and medium running results might not be the same to broaden that horizon, sustain those surveys in the longer run. So that's great. I appreciate you having me on. Is there anything else you want to bring up before we go? Um, no, no, this was, this was really fun to talk to you. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Hopefully we'll have you on again soon to talk about another one of your papers. Great, great. Yeah, thank you. I'd love that. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.